This morning we're going to take a break from our verse-by-verse studies through Revelation and instead take a look at a passage, as you can see on the screen. And I'm excited to share with you. I think it's a really neat story, Um, some really fun things in here that blew my mind. And it's a familiar story to most of us, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch there on the desert road. That's the exact desert road that they were on, in fact. There was the first paved and painted. That's not true. But we are studying that, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And, and I love it because it shows us a lot of things. And today it's going to show us plainly and profoundly how powerful God's word is. How the Lord has a personal love for each of us, each of his people, and for the people of the earth. And how he has a specific plan and desire for our lives. And it shows us how we can be his operatives wherever he's placed us. And how we can be effective in our service. And as a Christian, any one of us as Christians can be effective operatives for the Lord. You know, when I hear the word operative, most often my mind kind of goes to that genre of special ops, right? You know, the, the movies or the television shows where, where, you know, a highly trained individual is sent out on this ultra important, ultra secret mission that few, if any other agents, would be able to accomplish. You know, I, I hear that word and most often I immediately go to thinking of Jack Bauer or James Bond or Jason Bourne and apparently it helps to have a name that starts with J. So if you have a J name, you might want to think about a career like in the Navy SEALs or something like that uh, because you are predisposed, so it would seem. But when I think of the word operative, you know, I think of guys like that doing these elite and incredible things that defy logic and think, oh, well, yeah, he's the only person in the world that could do that, who could save in that situation. But in reality, that's only one way we use the word. In fact, operative as a word most commonly means something much less specialized. It simply means functional. It means ready for use. It means that uh, something has been put together properly and has been powered sufficiently in order to function, to operate functionally. Does it work? Is it put together correctly? Now, as Christians, you and I are people who want to be ready for use because God says in his word that we are his operatives on the earth. And we use different words or different analogies from time to time. We see them in scripture, but you know, whether it's we're his body, you know, his active members on the earth or whether we're his ambassadors or his agents, well, we're his operatives. We're here on the earth acting as those operatives in the power of Christ on his mission to accomplish his work in whatever capacity he sends us out to do so. And we're told in the Bible that we have been set free by the Lord, free from the power of sin and death, not so that we can just drift aimlessly and live you know, our own lives untethered from you know, any purpose or from any uh, you know, particular way of living, But it says that we've been set free so that we can then turn and surrender to the God who blood bought us and we can serve him and serve others. And and because of that, he says in his word, "Okay, keep watch, always be ready and be directed by the Holy Spirit to do service for the king, to operate, to carry out missions and tasks and assignments in our service to our king. And so what we want to consider today is how we function as operatives for the Lord in our regular day-to-day lives and learn how all this works as we submit to God's Word and allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and direct us. And then the Lord will use us to accomplish His great and meticulous work around the world. 
And what's great is that in our passage here, we're going to see three different operatives, and they're each at different levels of experience and capability, but each and every one of them is used by God to accomplish significant and meaningful work. We get to see a demonstration of the power of the Word of God as it goes out and as a person submits to it. And we also get a very small glimpse into how intricate and involved God's work all around us truly is. As human beings who feel and who, uh, you know, feel strained sometimes and have pressures and all these things going on, we live, you know, in a temporal world. It sometimes feels in our heart like God is far away. Or we wonder, man, Lord, are my prayers being heard? Lord, have you sort of withdrawn from me? Are you realizing what's going on in my life right now? One of my favorite things about this passage is how it kind of peels back the curtain for us to once again reveal in a very practical way just how involved God is in the world. And that he's not removed, he's not far away, but that he is profoundly and personally and precisely involved in your life and the lives of the people around you. And that he is near to us. And so, exciting story. Let's begin at verse 26 of Acts chapter 8. And there we read this. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. The first operative we want to study here is the angel. He was sent by God to give a message of direction to Philip. So if we can imagine the heavenly scene, you got angels in heaven, right? And there before the throne room, this guy, we know the angels have names from the Bible. And so this angel is called in. He says, okay, the Lord says, what I want you to do is take this message to Philip and deliver it to him. Now, a couple of things here. First, from this, we see that angels are most definitely still in operation in the church age. Um, you know, some, we don't know a whole lot about angels. They're, they're kind of mysterious characters a little bit to us. What we do see in the Bible is that, frankly, they're kind of cranky from our perspective in that when, when we see them interacting with human beings in the Bible and the human beings like ask questions or, or, or have any doubt, the angels are like, well, then forget it. Now, you're, now you can't see or now you can't talk for nine months or, you know, they, they seem to be serious guys. Other times we see angels where they're dispatched down in, for example, in one night, one angel destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers as they slept. I mean, so they're serious guys. And we don't exactly know everything that goes on with angels. But what we learn here is that they are most definitely still in operation in the church age. That didn't stop at the resurrection or at the crucifixion. In fact, as we are um, studying through Revelation regularly on Sunday mornings here, we're seeing them a lot in our studies. And, And we see that they have some very unique roles during the tribulation period, especially But even now, right now, they're a part of God's work on the earth. In fact, Hebrews 13 says this. I don't know to be excited about this verse or really stressed out by it. But verse 2 says, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Oh, man, I shouldn't have cut that guy off, you know, in line or on the freeway or whatever. Uh, But it's interesting. Angels are doing stuff. And the Lord has uh, assignments for them. He has work for them. And they're, they're working. And here in our passage, we see an angel here delivering a message, delivering orders to Philip. And so they're definitely still out and about in our present age. Now, second, and this is the more important thing as we focus on this first operative. When we think about the power and the capability of an angelic being, 
from what we know in Scripture, all their strength, all their potential, all their effectiveness, their ability to transport between heaven and earth, and they can be seen or unseen. They have all this power. And I mean, kind of is mind-blowing to try to think about them. But doesn't it seem like he's overqualified to be sent on this errand? I mean, isn't there somebody else or, or something else that could accomplish this? The Lord calls this angel into the throne room and he says, hey, go tell Philip to go to Gaza. And then that's it. That's the job. And I found myself thinking, okay, well, wait, couldn't the Holy Spirit have done that himself? Because in a moment here, we're going to see later on in our passage, the Holy Spirit speaking to Philip directly. And so here you wonder, okay, why is the Lord on one hand, if, while we still want to give respect, of course, but why is the Lord, from our perspective, wasting this angel's time with this job? This 16-word, one-sentence message to get from heaven down to earth to deliver to Philip. When in other passages of the Bible, man, like donkeys are talking to people, the Holy Spirit could be talking to people, so what's the deal here? Well, of course the Lord could have used the Holy Spirit himself or, or just told Philip directly, but I don't want us to miss this wonderful encouragement about what we're seeing here. God, in His grace, opens up His plan to include His creatures. Now, we know that. As Christians, we understand that. Yeah, I'm a part of the kingdom of God. I'm a part of the household of God and the work that He has for you know, the earth. But we want to celebrate and consider that, the fact that God is actually including His creatures in what He's doing in His eternal magnificent work around the world. Now, we are not angels, but I think there's a very good principle for us to learn here. And that's that because God is including us and because he says, hey, come on in and be a part of what I'm doing. Well, in that case, no service to God should be beneath us in our minds. Man, this angel's overqualified for this job. You know, in some sense, you think, really? I mean, doesn't, isn't there something better this angel could be doing? And the answer is, no, the Lord delighted to include him in this little task. It was absolutely unnecessary for the Lord to send this angel from one sort of earthly perspective. But it was God's delight to include this angel in the ministry that day. And say, hey, who else can I include in this work that I want to do in Philip's life, in the eunuch's life, and, and further out? And God, we learn here, wants to include you. He wants to include me in his work around the earth. Certainly not because he needs us, but because he loves us. And he delights in that interaction and including us and us being a part of what he is doing. I was thinking about this and, you know, I was thinking about how, you know, my boys... They love to come out and help me wash our car, right? And I use the word help pretty loosely because they're little guys and they're just spraying all over the place and they're knocking the bucket over and, and you know, they, they can kind of wash a certain height and then obviously they can't get above that. They can't reach, you know, the top of the car. And yes, if I look at it sort of from an unloving and mechanical way on a piece of paper, I would say, well, yeah, I could do the job better and faster if I just did it alone. But guess what? I want to be with them. I want to share that time together. I want to show them how it's done and have those laughs and those smiles together. I want that relationship. And guess what? God wants that kind of thing, too, because he's not just just our master. He is, but he's also our father. 
And in the, in the word it says, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. That he should open up his workshop, as it were, and say, hey, come on in here and be a part of what I'm doing. And he should include us in his gracious outpouring of ministry and, and the working of his will to redeem a lost and dying world. And so maybe today the Lord is going to give you some little opportunity to do something that from one perspective is downright beneath your talents or your abilities or your pay grade, right? But what a beautiful thing it is that God is willing to say, hey, what else can I include my people in? What else? How else can I divide this work down so I can get more people involved and more opportunities for my people and, and, and for my creatures? Because remember, God also says, not only do I want to interact with you and not only do I want to be with you and have that relationship together, but I want you to serve me so that then I can reward you. Of course, it would have been easier for the Lord to just be like, I'll just take care of this message myself. But he wants to reward his people. He wants to give us opportunities so that we can be a part of that work and reap the harvest with him and, and enjoy that inheritance together. And so nothing that we do for the Lord should be beneath us. Now, I love how the verse there ends. It says this is desert, just in case we didn't know. Dr. Luke is writing the book of Acts and he's setting a scene for us here. He's, he's cluing us in, not because, uh, you know, he's so interested in geography, because he wants us to understand what's happening. Now, we just sort of just dropped in on this story without, you know, setting a context up. Most of you know what's going on, but here's what's been happening. First of all, Philip was in Samaria, this city north of Jerusalem. And what is happening here is that he's being asked to leave a city that is full of revival. There's a, a, an incredible spiritual revival happening in Samaria at this moment. And Philip is the guy who, I don't want to say in charge, but he's the guy God is using to bring revival. He's working miracles in people's midst. People are getting saved left and right. All of this stuff is happening. And then this angel comes to Philip and he says, hey, uh, I want you to leave this city, Samaria, and go to the desert. Well, what am I doing there? I mean, there's no, there's no uh, clue as to what he's doing or what's going to happen once he gets there. It's just, hey, go down to the desert. Philip had been hanging out in Samaria, preaching the gospel, performing miracles, people getting saved left and right. It's a genuine, like, book of Acts revival that we would read about there. And now the Lord says, hey, I just want you to leave all of that and just go sit on a desert road. Now, to get where he was supposed to go, we see there, we're told that geographically he would have to travel back through Jerusalem. As I said, Samaria is a city up in the north. Then down you have Jerusalem and then down below that is Gaza. And the text even says, take the road from Jerusalem down to Gaza. Now, here's the problem. There's a significant problem. There's a reason why Philip's not in Jerusalem at this point. The Christians had all been in Jerusalem, thousands and thousands of Christians, people getting saved every day. And then Stephen is preaching before these Jewish guys. They get super angry. They decide to stone him. And that sets Saul of Tarsus just out crazy. And he says, hey, now that we're killing Christians, let's kill us some Christians. 
And he starts attacking the church and imprisoning men and women without mercy. And he's killing people. He's, it says that he's causing them to blaspheme. And so the church all scatters out during this section of the book of Acts to all these other different cities. And it says at one point in the book of Acts that only the apostles are left in Jerusalem. It's so unsafe for Christians to be there. They all just get out of there. And so now an angel comes to Philip and says, not only do I want you to leave this revival that you're a part of, I want you to go down into Jerusalem, walk through that city and get on the road that leads to Gaza. And so here God is asking him to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He would have to if he was going to obey this message from the Lord, obey this mission. That's the reason he was in Samaria, because Saul was waging a war against Christians in Jerusalem. Now, on top of all of this, as I've already said, Philip would have no idea what he was going for or what he should do when he got there. I don't think he even really knew where he was supposed to go. It just says, get on the road and get down in this kind of general area. Man, this is a hard, hard word to receive from the Lord that requires um, an incredible amount of sacrificial obedience. Number one, leave the excitement of the ministry that is, you know, turning the world upside down in Samaria. Number two, I'm not even going to tell you where you're going or what to do when you get there. And number three, I want you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death where, where, where you will be actively hunted as you walk through Jerusalem. And here's the thing. Being a servant, being an operative means obeying the orders were given. And military people understand this, soldiers and sailors, they understand that, okay, well, maybe they don't have a full understanding of every operation that's going on or the full extent of, of how all the mission is going to play out. But they do understand, okay, I obey the orders that I'm given. And, and, and if those orders come to me with some danger, that's part of being um, a soldier, part of being a sailor. As Christians, we're no longer given the option of self-directing. The truth is human beings can't self-direct anyway, right? We're told that before we're Christians, we're held captive by sin. We're held captive by the devil. People who aren't Christians, they think they're free, but really they're enslaved to sin. They're enslaved um, to, to our enemy, the devil. Then when we're set free, it says, you shall know the truth. The truth shall set you free. But when we're free from sin and from death and from the devil, that doesn't mean that we're allowed to then self-direct. In fact, we absolutely do not have the option to self-direct as Christians. And really, that's not a bad thing because we know that the Bible says that there's a way that seems right to a man. He says, oh, I'll go this way and that'll be a good idea. But the word says, but that is in the end the way of death. And so God comes along and he says, hey, you, when you self-direct, you're going to die. You're going to head to destruction. And how about this? I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. You come by me, you, 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 you surrender to me and go my way, obeying me, and then I'm going to get you to life. And not just life, but life more abundantly. Everlasting life in heaven, a completed life here on the earth. And it says that when we go our own way in the Bible, we go astray. But the reminder here is that God's word even as Christians, especially as Christians, is going to challenge us and demand surrender. As we sit before the Bible and read it, it's going to confront us in such a way that we either have to disobey the Lord or bow before Him and say, nevertheless, at your word, I will. I, I, this is such a hard message for Philip to receive. And as we open the pages of Scripture, I mean, there are things that are equally as hard, equally as like mind-blowing, where the Lord says, hey, your enemies... I require that you love your enemies. 
Uh, I'm telling you, you must deny self. You must crucify the old man and follow me. You have to take up a cross every single day. And we think, man, that is a challenge. That is a, a difficult word for you to give to me. And the question is, okay, what do we do when we receive an order like that? Will we cast the nets on the other side of the boat when the Lord asks us to, even if it doesn't make sense or when it is so much more difficult or dangerous than going our own way? Well, Philip did. He obeyed. And he's the second operative we want to focus in on and learn from. Verse 27 says, So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. And then the spirit said to Philip, notice the spirit this time said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. I wonder how long, you know, Philip was hanging out on the deserted road before he had this encounter. I wonder when he figured, like, okay, I'm on the road, where can I stop? There wasn't a sign that said, Philip, stop here. You know, he's following the Lord by faith. He's being directed by the Holy Spirit. The Lord's meeting him as he obeys. But I do wonder how long he waited. A couple hours? A couple of days? I mean, I don't know. Because we're not told. I wonder if this was the first group of people that passed him by on the road, or whether others had, and the, and the Spirit said, no, not this chariot. We don't know. It's a little bit of speculation. But here's what we can be pretty sure of. And that's that once he was there in position, he was waiting with expectation. You know, seeing down through the desert on the road, a blip of a caravan on the horizon, steadily approaching him. He would have been undoubtedly thinking and praying, Lord, is this it? Is this the reason why I was sent here? You have me here for a reason. I don't want to hang out in the desert, but you have me here. Is this it? And we learn from him that expectation is a very important thing in the life of a Christian. And what I mean by that is living our lives with spiritual expectation every day in such a way that we expect the Bible to speak to us when we read it. In a a way that we expect uh, God to meet with us when we gather together as a church. In ways that we expect the Lord to direct us to serve him in specific ways. That we expect the interaction of the Holy Spirit day by day. That we expect those things because God says in His words, I'm going to do those things. And so that we live our lives in that expectation, saying, okay, I know God has said that He's going to speak to me through His word. I know that He says He'll meet with me in a special way as I gather with His people. I know that He says that He has the Holy Spirit for me to empower me and indwell me day after day after day. And so I'm going to expect those things to happen and live a spiritual life looking at my circumstances and my situations and my attitudes through that expectation. It's an essential attitude for believers because expectation is biblical and it keeps us from missing the subtle opportunities that the Lord might present to us. You know, probably none of us have had an angel show up this morning and give us a direct message today. If you think that's happened, we have some people that would love to talk to you after service. But I mean, hey, maybe an angel showed up to one of you today and said, go to church. I'm guessing that didn't happen for any of us. Not that it couldn't, but I'm just guessing that it didn't. And so, in lieu of that sort of direct direction, we wait in expectation that the Lord is going to speak through the avenues which He says He's going to speak. His Word, through the church, through the Holy Spirit, through our opportunities, and say, okay, I'm going to view my life not through temporal lenses and then from time to time call out to heaven, but through spiritual lenses, understanding that God has a plan because today is the day the Lord has made. 
and that he has a desire for me and for my circumstances, no matter where I find myself, whether I find myself in Samaria, whether I find myself in the desert, the Lord's with me and is looking down on me and has desire for me. And though every chariot we come across may not be an assignment for us, perhaps one of them is today. And that spiritual expectation is going to keep us in tune with what God might want to do. Now, this eunuch we meet here, how he had heard about the God of Israel, we don't know. We just don't know. But again, what a great testimony of the far-reaching grace of God. That he is drawing men from all over the world through his word that they might know him and be saved. Because God's word and his revelation of himself, it crosses every border. It can reach any person. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. He is active and he is moving place to place, heart to heart to reveal himself and how men might be saved. And you and I are a part of that work, but he's busy right now. I just am enjoying this recently, this thought that right now our God is not removed. He's not far away. He is busy in every corner of the earth, reaching out to human beings and accomplishing his good purposes. He's busy, busy, busy because he delights in saving people and in fulfilling his promises to his people and in doing his work. Now, here we meet this fellow, this Ethiopian eunuch. Unfortunately, we're not given a name for him. But we're told he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he had gotten his hands on God's word. Specifically, we see he was reading the book of Isaiah. Now, Philip somehow figured that out, right? I don't know if he was reading out loud or if he kind of just sidled up to the chariot and was like reading over his shoulder or what. But he took the opportunity to start a conversation with this man. Verse 30 says, So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, and he said, Do you understand what you're reading? Okay, this is very significant to me, because remember, we want to study Philip as an operative of the kingdom and an example of how we minister to people and are most effective in our service to the Lord, right? So here's what's really interesting to me. His first word to the eunuch was not, Hi there. I'm a miracle worker. Can I tell you some stories about how I work miracles? Because he was a miracle worker. The Lord had done these mind-blowing things through Philip up in Samaria. He was this incredible evangelist. But Philip doesn't come and say, hey, I'm a great leader in the church. I'd love to tell you about myself and the things that I've done and the things that I've seen and the, you know, the person that I am. He doesn't do that at all. He doesn't even introduce himself. For all the Ethiopian knows, he's just a crazy guy hanging out on the desert road. We wouldn't pick him up in our car if we're on the road, you know, out in the desert. If we're out on Houston Avenue out there and there's some guy who says, I want to talk to you about the book you're reading. We'd be like, thank you. We'll, we'll pass this time. But he directs him to the word. He says, instead of talking about himself or talking about, you know, the sensational things he'd been a part of, he says, do you understand the scripture that you're reading? His focus and his desire was to talk to this man about the word of God. Because Philip understood that the word of God has power. The word of God does not return void. It is alive and well and it does not need to be smuggled in under a cloak of sensationalism. You know, throughout the book of Acts, we see again and again the focus and the importance placed by the early church on God's word, on teaching it and on understanding it. Rather than experience or feeling or sensationalism, man, they focused on teaching God's word. And there was nothing more sensational than the stuff happening in the book of Acts. 
People are being healed. You know, the Holy Spirit's baptizing people with fire. All angels are appearing. Thousands of people are giving their lives to the Lord. Paul's going to be stoned to death and then raised to life. I mean, that's sensational. People come to church like Ananias and Sapphira and drop dead. And yet again and again, the priority and the focus by the early church and by the apostles is the teaching of God's word and that people might understand what God's word says. Because they, the apostles and the deacons and the church leaders, they were preachers, they were not performers. Very important. It is the word of God that matters most. And it is the word of God that advances the work of God. Not sensationalism, not experientialism, but the word. And Philip thought so, and that's why he asked this question. Even though he was a miracle worker, he said, hey, what you need is to hear the word taught. In verse 31, the Ethiopian said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. As an operative, Philip was going to be used to bring this man to Christ. But he wasn't sent as a billboard. He was sent as a guide. And, and so we want to take care that we don't become placard Christians, right? A placard is something on, you know, on a wall or on a sign somewhere that is just like, yeah, that way. You want the bathroom, go that way. And it, it, it can be helpful, but, you know, a, a while back I was at the, the county courthouse trying to find it, and I can't find anything because the signage didn't make sense to me, right? The placards are there, but I just couldn't find the building I needed to get to. I needed a person to say, hey, where is the county clerk's office? And guess what? I went and found a person who sent me to the wrong building, but then I found another person, and eventually I got there where they said, actually, you need to go over here. But, but all that said, I needed a person. I didn't need a placard. And, and, and we want to take care that we don't become placard Christians, but that we're personal Christians who bring people to the Lord. Because we know the way to go, right? We know how to get to Jesus. We know how to get to salvation. By extension, we know how to get to heaven. People outside of Christ don't know, and they need to be brought. They need to be told personally and, and ministered to in that way. And here we see that the eunuch was in need of actual answers. He needed someone who could walk him through God's word and what it was saying and explain the sense to him. He didn't just need a little sign that said, God, that way, head that way. I think that's effectively what he had received back in Jerusalem, right? Somehow at some point this man had heard about the God of Israel. We don't know how. But in his heart, there, he longed to know this God. He longed to be redeemed and restored. And so he made this considerable voyage from Africa up to Israel. And surely once he had finally made it to Jerusalem, having come all this way, being closer to ever than this God that he was desperately trying to find, he would have asked the locals, hey, where can I find your God? And I'm sure a lot of people just pointed and said, yeah, there's the temple, try over there, Right? And, and he had gone and tried to worship there, but before entering the temple, he would have been, they would have said, hey, you're a foreigner, right? Yeah. Well, we got some problems then because we have some restrictions on foreigners. Do you have any other, you know, conditions that we should know about? Well, I'm a eunuch. Yeah, you can't come in here. You're not allowed to come in our temple. This temple that was full of the crowds who had crucified Christ just months before. This temple that was full of the Pharisees who the Lord said, you don't have a real connection to me. You've made the word of God of no effect. 
And they say, yeah, you can't come in to worship our God. He traveled all of these miles and all this expense and all this danger and all this stuff to only get there to not receive any real connection to this God he was seeking. And they say, yeah, you can't even come in to worship. Sorry. And he came to the end of his trip. He buys a scroll or two. He packs up and starts the long road home. That's a bad vacation. Uh, this is a rough, rough go. But we see he's still hungry for salvation. Even though he would have been rejected entrance to worship, he says, okay, well, I, I have to know this God. He gets his hands on the book of Isaiah, probably the rest of the Old Testament. And he starts pouring over it, but it's just not connecting with him. He needs someone to tell him what the truth is and walk him through all of this stuff. He needed someone who would give him the message of the gospel so that he might finally know the truth and be set free. He was in need of real guidance. He didn't need cliches. He didn't need to be belittled or berated. He needed someone who loved him enough to help him understand. You know, it's hard to have love for our enemies or for, our, for strangers. Hey, it's impossible on the natural level to have love for our enemies. But that's the kind of love we are called to as God's people, a personal love that reaches out to strangers, to even our enemies. That's the kind of love that changes lives and opens people's eyes to what God's word really says. And it's the kind of love that Philip had. Look at verse 32. It says, The place in the scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And so the eunuch answered Philip and he said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? And so the eunuch found himself in what we call Isaiah 53. There weren't chapter and verse distinctions back then, but that's where, what we would call it. It's a wonderful chapter to be sure. In fact, man, Isaiah 53 through 60 are just beautiful passages. We would all do well to listen or read through those sometime this week. But it means he would have read quite a bit. I mean, he this isn't the kind of guy that just opens up in the middle of the book. It's a scroll. I mean, it's a book. He would have read it from the beginning. And that means that he would have made it through what we call Isaiah 20 and 43 and 45. In all of those passages, there were some not so encouraging things said about his home country, Ethiopia. And about the Lord saying to his people, Israel, you better get yourself away from Ethiopia because judgment's coming. Uh-oh. This is a very interesting book all of a sudden if you're this Ethiopian eunuch. So here you are, one of the highest ranking officials of the nation. And this strange book from Israel, whose God you believe in, is talking to you. Not only about judgments on your nation, but also about your personal iniquity that would for some reason be laid on a suffering servant. And you're trying to figure out who's the suffering servant. Whoa, whoa, this is saying a lot of things to me. And I need to know what's real and what's true and what this means. And we learn that the Bible is alive and well and it speaks to each of us and everyone else for that matter if we will allow it to. It is not antiquated. It's not out of touch. It doesn't need to be modernized. It cuts right into who we are and where we are and what is going on in this world so that we can be reconciled to God. And here's a key thing to remember. The Bible speaks not just generally or generically it speaks with personal precision to you and to me and to the circumstances and situations we find ourselves in. Certainly many of us in this room right now know that to be true from personal experience, but we'll also see it proved through this story. 
So the eunuch paused on this passage, which talks about Christ who was led as a sheep to the slaughter. He didn't know what to make of it. 34 again. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? And then Philip opened up his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. And so hopefully as we're learning how to be effective operatives from this story, we're also able to consider and celebrate the personal power the Bible has for each of us. That's not to say that we get to have our own private interpretations, not at all. But that the Bible has enough power and that it is a current message for God's people corporately and individually. The Bible, the scriptures, they are not the vague fortune cookie double talk that we find in a lot of other philosophies or teachings. Where everything's so foggy and ethereal, it's like, well, that sounds good. Well, what does it say? Well, it doesn't really say anything, these other philosophies, right? But the Bible says, hey, I'm going to talk to you specifically and personally about a situation you're in right now. Whoa, how did that happen? Think of what the Ethiopian would have been thinking through as he's reading this book and he sees his country being talked about. And he sees him as an individual and his sin and iniquities being talked about. And it is a current message for us. It comes to us with active direction, with personal application, with essential instruction for every day of our lives. And God's word will by no means pass away, but it is given to sustain us, not from time to time, but from this day and every other. Jesus said, we need the scriptures more than we need to eat physical food. He says, that's how you live, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And so be encouraged to always send people back to the scriptures and to send yourself back to the scriptures. You have questions, go to the word. You have struggles, go to the word. You need counsel, find it in the word. Because the scriptures come to us complete with the power of God, not just generically, not just hypothetically, but personally with precision. And many of us know this to be true from personal experience, but more importantly, from what we'll see here, Philip started right there, it says, beginning at this verse, meaning that he then moved forward through Isaiah. And this blew my mind, okay? I hope it blows your mind as well. But he starts right there from what we call Isaiah 53 and started preaching to the eunuch using this text. And when I was going through the story, I found myself wondering, why Isaiah? Because I'm guessing that this eunuch, a man of great authority, a man of great wealth, he probably purchased a full copy of the Old Testament, or at least every book that was available to him, not just the Isaiah scroll. He's in Jerusalem. He has a bunch of money. That's where the scribes are. That's where the books are. And we know from, you know, scholars note that the quote he reads earlier is from the Septuagint, and so it's altogether probable that he had a whole copy of what we call the Old Testament. But either way, this is the book and this is the passage that found its way into his lap at just the right time as his caravan was passing Philip. And what we learn here is that the Holy Spirit was not only working in Philip to send him out, but he was working in this eunuch as well. And here we're going to see a beautiful demonstration of how God uses his word to speak powerfully and precisely person to person if we are willing to listen. Because there he would come across this passage that arrested his heart and attention about this suffering servant. Man, who is he talking about? And he couldn't get past this chapter. And, and he had been reading this book that presented him with his own sin, but also a savior. Chapter 53. Now suddenly he's in this conversation with some weird guy he's met on the road. A guy who can't wait to talk to him about the very book that he's reading. 
And he says, let me talk to you from this point forward in the book of Isaiah. And then in just a few paragraphs over in what we call chapter 56, this is what Philip would be able to read to him. Ready? Isaiah 56, starting in verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Don't let foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord say, the Lord will never let me be a part of his people. And don't let the eunuchs say, I'm a dried up tree with no children and no future. For this is what the Lord says, I will bless those eunuchs who keep my Sabbath days holy, who choose to do what pleases me and commit their lives to me. I will give them from within the walls of my house a memorial and a name far greater than sons and daughters could give. For the name I give them is an everlasting one. It will never disappear. That's what he got to read next. This man who would have been refused entry to the temple because he was a eunuch, because he was a foreigner. And he's searching for God and the Lord says, I'm going to connect you with this person who can explain the sense to you about what I care for you, how much I love you, you as a eunuch. I'm going to reach out to you. I'm going to put this book right in your face, right at the right passage so that you can see how personal and how powerful the love of God is and how wonderful his word is. What a perfect book and passage for this man to be reading. And what a comfort it is that we do not have to rely solely on ourselves to convince or to influence people to believe in Christ. God sends us out with power. He sends His Word out with power. And while we minister from the outside, we can be confident that the Holy Spirit is working intricately and personally from the inside. We're not out there firing blanks. We're out there equipped. And the Lord is operating from the inside as we operate from the outside. And He's bringing all these elements together so that the Scriptures can cut right into our hearts to show us who we are and who God is and what He has done and what He desires for us. And what a beautiful moment. What an incredible scene that is playing out here. But then we remember that this story is an example and an illustration to us of the normal operation of the power of God. This wasn't the like, you know, the big finale scene and the Lord's like, whew, that that sure was a production, now we're done with that. He says this is the regular operation of the Christian life and of the power of the word as it goes out in strength and in ability and with purpose. And the Lord pairing all of us around to do these different missions and following these different orders so that people's lives can be changed for time and for eternity. It says that Philip preached Jesus to him. Now, maybe he wasn't real familiar with Isaiah as far as teaching goes. But he was certainly familiar with Jesus. Not because he was an original disciple. He wasn't. This isn't Philip the Apostle. It's Philip the Deacon. It's a different guy. But because he was walking with Jesus in his personal life and pursuing him, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, that made him fully operational and able to deliver the saving message to the eunuch. That's what made him the kind of operative that God used to change the world. He simply functioned as a normal, devoted disciple, filled with the Spirit, following the Lord, obeying His Word. Like the sermon given on the road to Emmaus, the Actual text of this one is omitted, which is kind of a bummer. But we know what the content of both those sermons were. This sermon and the sermon that Jesus gave on the road to Emmaus. And the content was Jesus. You know, here it says he preached Jesus to him. And it said that Christ, when he was on the road to Emmaus, he showed how the world revealed himself to them. I may not be a Bible scholar, but if I'm a Christian... That means I have a Jesus to preach. If you're a Christian, you have a Jesus to preach to people. And we have a a Bible who reveals Christ, whose message is simple and accessible. 
And though Christ himself would obviously teach a better sermon than me or a better message than me, he's given me the privilege of preaching to others, whether in the pulpit or in the chariot or wherever else, whether in Samaria or the desert road, the Lord says, yeah, you guys can preach Jesus to people. And so as I serve the Lord, I want to have more and more a Jesus to preach. As I learn more about him and his word, as I draw nearer to him day after day, as I allow him to lead me on. 36 says, now as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? What we learn here is that Philip didn't just deliver facts about Jesus. He clearly showed how a person can follow Christ as Savior and King. Who knows how long he talked to the eunuch, but... By the time they got to a body of water, this man had the understanding that a person has to choose to identify with Christ and own him as master and Lord and dedicate their lives to him. He says, hey, from what you've been saying, hey, how about I get baptized? Let's do it. When we're operating as preachers, we need to make sure our message is a personal message, not just information about God, but imperatives about following him. Now, we are explaining that there is a choice to make. And that we are making that choice ourselves day after day. 37 says, then Philip said, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he answered, he says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. As an operative, Philip had a clear delivery of how a person could receive eternal life. He didn't add requirements. He didn't add works to the eunuch's shoulders. He simply said, if you believe. The gospel is rich, but it is simple, and we should preach simply. 38, so he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. He baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus. And passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. As we wrap up our examination of Philip here, we see that even though he wasn't an apostle, he was still qualified and equipped to do, to do all sorts of service to the Lord, for the Lord. He started out waiting tables in Jerusalem, helping widows in the church. Then God started using him to preach and to work miracles and to be a part of a revival and to baptize people, to explain the Bible, to do all of these different amazing things. And you and I are ministers of the gospel just like he was. He's just a regular Christian serving the Lord. And that means we can be used just like he was. The work of the Lord is not reserved for a, special, for a few special ops. The couple of you know, spiritual Jack Bowers and James Bonds out there. That's not how the Lord works. The Lord invites all of his people who are ready to function, ready to be powered up and sent out to accomplish his work. And now we can't close the story without taking a look at just one more operative of the Lord. And that's our third example, the eunuch himself. He got saved, and we're told that coming up out of the water, he never saw Philip again because the Spirit had raptured him away. And I found myself thinking, now hold on just a second. Wait, this guy's not ready. He's only heard one Bible study in his whole life. He's only read like one book of, I mean, he needs, he needs like training, and he needs equipping, he needs discipling, he needs like a program. That's the way that, you know, I would think about it. If the angel was overqualified to deliver the message to Philip, then this guy is painfully underqualified to bring the gospel to his home country where there are no churches, there are no Bible colleges, there are no copies of the word, there are no Christians, there's not anything. He's the only guy going back to the country of Ethiopia with the only copy of the Bible. And we're like, hey man, like this guy needs some more tools, right? He needs some more equipping. But what an amazing thing 
that the Spirit and the Lord look at him and they say, this guy's good to go. This guy's good to go, coming up out of the water. He doesn't need anything else. That is an amazing thing to me. He would be the only Christian in Ethiopia upon his return. And yet church history reveals that when he got back, the gospel did go out with power and that revival broke out and that many and many and many were saved in Ethiopia. He went home to a mission field with the word of God, the indwelling Holy Spirit. And even though he didn't have an understanding of every scripture, he had the training he needed to find the understanding of scripture. Because Philip had showed him how to go through the Bible to read it and find Jesus. He he would have sat with him and he said, okay, look, here's Isaiah. Let me start talking to you about Jesus. And here's how we can learn about him. Here's how you find the sense in Scripture. And so he had a copy of the Word. He had the indwelling Holy Spirit. He had an understanding of how to study the Bible. And the Lord said, you're good. You are good to go. You're good to be the only missionary in Ethiopia. Knock yourself out. This is mind-blowing. This is crazy. And, and the Holy Spirit is saying, this guy doesn't need Philip anymore. He doesn't need, you know, any other kind of program. He doesn't need a man to tell him what to think about the Bible. He's sufficient because the Spirit was completing him. And because the Word is sufficient. And because God sends His Word and His servants out with power and ability beyond human reasoning or understanding. Now, of course, he was going to grow. And of course, discipleship programs are a good thing. And, and he was going to learn more and become a you know, deeper and deeper and more mature Christian. But at that moment, what a beautiful thing that the Lord said, this guy is good. He's good to go to be a preacher just like Philip was good to go somewhere else and be a preacher. The Holy Spirit looked at both of these guys and said, equal, equal operatives. They're both ready to go. They're both ready to go down their separate ways and accomplish the same work as the Spirit filled them and as the Word went out and as they followed the Lord. And we read that he went on his way excited and rejoicing, preaching just as Philip went his way preaching. He had now become another deputy, another operative for the kingdom. He was immediately equipped and empowered to do so. And so as we close, this is what we want to consider. We are God's operatives. Hey, maybe you feel more like the eunuch than you feel like Philip. That's fine. Because in the eyes of the Holy Spirit, he says that both of these guys effectively are equal agents. You're at the same level because you function. You're ready to receive the word. You're ready to receive the Holy Spirit. You're ready to go out and preach Jesus. Yeah, that guy was a miracle worker. That's what I've been doing through him in Samaria. Yeah, this guy is a few seconds old in the Lord, but you're both preachers. Go where you're going. Do what you're doing, and I'm going to use you to change the world. And so whether we feel more like the eunuch or more like Philip, hey, either way, we're God's operatives. Maybe we have specialized skills, maybe we don't. What matters is not our qualifications, but our functionality. Are we ready to function as spiritual people? Are the pieces in place for us to be used by God? Maybe the Lord's going to give us a great work to build today, or maybe He's going to do something small and put one brick in our hand, as it were, and just say, hey, go put that brick over there. Go deliver this one-sentence message to this person. We can trust that whatever it is, whatever God gives us, it is significant in His elaborate plan for this world. And we can rejoice in the fact that He has commissioned us to be a part of His grace, and that God sends us out with power and direction. Because we're not meant to float aimlessly as disciples, but we're to follow the way of the Lord because we are the sheep of His hand. He is our shepherd, and He's a shepherd who leads. And we function as we follow the Lord by obeying His Word 
and living Spirit-filled lives, lives that are submitted to Christ and devoted to Him, that's how we become like these beautiful examples in the Bible. They are inspiring. They are mind-blowing. But guess what? They're the normal, standard operations intended for us by our gracious God. He's our God. He's our loving Father. He's our faithful shepherd. And He wants to do all this and more through us as we cooperate with Him.